Welcome to the 3PL Summit. I'm Craig Fuller. We're excited to have you here, our guest in this virtual community. We'd certainly love to be in person, but this offers an opportunity for us to reach a much larger audience. Today, we're going to start with a conversation with Brad Jacobs. Brad Jacobs is the CEO and visionary behind XPO. Uh, real short story about Brad. I owned stock in XPO before Brad uh, ended up uh, taking over the company and built this massive conglomerate. The stock was at 75 cents back in 2011. It is over $81 today. Unfortunately, my stockbroker convinced me to sell when it was at 75 cents, and I didn't get to enjoy the upside. Brad, you have built an amazing company, uh, one that is the market leader. Uh, many people have doubted you along the way, uh, but we're certainly excited that you're going to have this open, fort, uh, open format town hall here today here at the 3PL Summit. Welcome. Th thanks, Craig. Gee, I'm really sorry you sold those shares at 75 cents, but you still have a chance to get in. We're not done yet. That's right. That's right. I actually have some call options at 23 when uh, there was a dip in 2016. So I did get in and, and I did benefit from the upside. But congratulations. I have to ask, you know, as a, as a founder, you've been a visionary taking this platform to levels that are unprecedented in the uh, trucking market and really in the global logistics market. Uh, the story of XBO is profound. What are you most proud of? I'm most proud of the culture that we've created. I'm most proud of the 100,000 people we have all around the globe who work harmoniously and cohesively and one-pointedly balancing all the different interests and goals that we have and the accomplishments that team has made. Look, at over, over the last decade, we were the seventh best performing stock of the Fortune 500. We've become a leader in some of the most important and fastest growing parts of the industry. And we powered it all by investing in technology before technology was cool. So, and we're getting the dividends. Uh, we're reaping the dividends from that investment in technology that we made in earlier years. So there's a lot I'm proud of. I'm mostly proud of the people in our culture. So, so Brad, um, I, I think it's amazing to see how uh, logistics and supply chain technology and, and supply chain has been important during this COVID crisis. How are you guys positioning your organization? We're positioning ourselves for the present by keeping our employees safe. That's our highest priority by a long shot. And we're positioning ourselves for the future by having these leadership positions in parts of the industry that have demand that's going to be increasing. So e-com is our biggest vertical. And of course, that's been on fire. So our, our decision to really double down on, on e-com and all things e-com, whether it's omni-channel, whether it's e-fulfillment, whether it's the returns and the reverse logistics, uh, that's really on fire. Good morning. My name is Matt Waller. I'm the dean of the Sam M. Walton College of Business. And, you know, in line with this technology and e-commerce theme, a couple of years ago, remember you all began using thousands of robots and cobots for fulfillment. In your opinion, do robots and cobots used in fulfillment have a sufficient ROI? Oh, absolutely. The problem is we can't get enough of them. But the robots can have productivity that's many times what a human being can have. And it makes the job of the human so much easier. Instead of walking miles and miles all day long all around the warehouse, the robot does that, brings the goods to the person. So, yeah, our ROI is, is enormous, and, and the future is more and more automation. That's a trend throughout the industry, throughout the world. It's particularly a trend within contract logistics in the warehouse environment. Hi, Brad. It's Ben Gordon. Great to see you again. 
Congratulations on all your continued success at XPO. Um, you, I wanted to ask you about e-commerce. As, as you alluded to earlier, it's, it's been the biggest vertical, biggest growth driver for XPO. Uh, you said two months ago in your analyst call, e-commerce saved us, uh, was our strongest performing vertical across the board. So my question is, what's your growth strategy in e-commerce? There's a competitive market. You've got lots of other smart people going after it. Uh, clearly, you've been very successful in this realm. What's your plan going forward to continue to lead in e-commerce? So we, we've developed platforms and leadership positions in most of those platforms in the various parts of the industry that e-commerce is driving growth in. So, for example, in Europe, we're the largest e-fulfillment provider. And we get a look at pretty much every RFP that's out there. And we are usually the largest outsourced 3PL for e-com for almost all of the big e-com players in Europe. So we're just going to keep keep growing that business. And it's been growing during the pandemic, and it's going to grow even faster when the pandemic is, is over. Here in the United States, we also have a fair amount of e-fulfillment. We do a lot of returns here as well. We do a lot of reverse logistics for one of the big telecom companies. We do all of their reverse logistics for one of the big uh, footwear companies, foot, uh, sports apparel companies. We do all their return logistics for their, their uh, uh, product. So there's, there's a lot of returns that we're doing that's increasing with e-commerce. And then there's the omni-channel logistics part, the omni-channel where we do the bricks, some the retailers who are selling both bricks and mortar and e-com and doing that in a, in a way that offers the alternative to the customer, we're, we're helping them with that because we know a lot about it because we're doing that for a lot of, a lot of their competitors. But you know, my question for you is, Brad, in these times of craziness, who do you go to uh, that's not. We we all know that XPO has got an incredible, incredible team, an incredible management team. But in these times of craziness, when you're you know being the leader that you are, who do you go to outside your work circle and ask questions for help and and to try to work through this craziness? Well, you're right. The main source of ideas and feedback and decision making is our senior leadership team, the top couple dozen folks who run the company on a day to day basis. And we meet very regularly, and we we now we meet over Zoom very regularly, and uh, we make collective decisions, and we we inform each other what's going on in different parts of the globe, different parts of the business, with different customers, different employee sets, and it's very it's very helpful. So the last last two days, I've been in two of the three days of our quarterly operating review, where we have all of our leaders from around the globe. Uh, report on how the quarter is looking and what we're planning to do to serve customers better in the next quarter and in the next coming years. So I, I learn a lot from that. There's a certain power in having a group of people who are smart, who are honest, who are open, and you have an environment that people trust each other, people respect each other. It's a safe environment where people can differ with each other and express differing perspectives, but in a respectful way. So that's a that's a real power that we have at the company. You know, it goes back to the answer I gave to Craig's question about the culture. So that, that's my primary source of decision-making where I go to. But outside the company, I, or outside the management team, I go to the board of directors. Uh, we have a, a good board. We have a sophisticated board. It's a diverse board. And, and we have a supervisory board in Europe as well. And there's a good place to, to bounce ideas off of and get strategic ideas and to, to, to reality check what we're thinking as a management team. Let's try this one again. I'm Lori Hunter-Royer from CEOX, and I was happy to hear you talk about culture being such an important part for you. 
As we all know, the times are changing rapidly around us from everything with COVID to the social unrest happening in the United States. And I wanted to hear from you how you're bringing equality into the workforce and what you would like to see in the industry as far as how equality is being handled. Uh, Great topic. So there is a problem in the country about racial inequality, and that's a fact. Um, I think that just in the last month or so, the recognition of that fact has gotten much more widespread, the acknowledgement of that fact. I know in our company, we've had uh, a number of town halls, many of which I've led, with our African-American population, for example, and there was a lot of pain, a lot of pain. And when I, I mentioned a minute ago that one thing we concentrate on is to make sure we've got a culture where people can respectfully speak up and present ideas that may be unpopular, but need to be heard, and ones that differ from other people. And so people are frank and candid in our company. That Honesty and straightforward is a big part of our culture. So in these town halls, people were honest, and people were straightforward. And to a person, every single African-American person in every single one of those town halls has experienced racism and is experiencing racism. And these were very, and these were like, when, when you ask the group how many people have experienced racism in their life, it's not like, you know, slowly people raise their hands. It was everyone raised their hand immediately. And then we heard stories and, you know, they were, they were, they were painful and they were very sincere. And, you know, it was a lot of emotion and, and, and tearing up. And these were, these were very impactful. For me, they were very impactful meetings and, and for the other participants as well. So there's a lot of there's a lot of work to do to get racial equality in America. There's a lot of work to do to get racial equality in the workplace. For our From our side, in our company, we can't boil the whole ocean, so we have to figure out what are the most important things we can do that can move the needle the most in terms of being part of this, this, this program to improve racial equality. And where we've come out is we're going to appoint a chief diversity officer, which we had been doing a search for but didn't, weren't really wasn't the top, highest priority. Now it is a high, high priority, and we're going to make that position an SVP level reporting into HR. We're going to make it a a C-level position reporting into me, and that person is going to be in charge of a few things. One is we need to increase the pipeline of diverse candidates, so we have to form better relationships with the uh, historically um, diverse uh, colleges and universities. We have to reach out into the diverse populations more to get become more of a feeder, we have to loosen our, we have to change our criterion a little bit about insisting on college degrees for certain job job functions because that 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 in a way discriminates against people who don't have college degrees and uh, and there's a disparity that between the races. So we're going to increase the number of diverse people we're going to hire. We're also going to increase the promotion, the mentoring and promotion and promoting of the careers of our black and Hispanic and and all of our minority employees. So while we've made excellent progress in terms of having a more diverse and inclusive organization, and I'm proud of that, we're nowhere near where we want to be. And I think those two functions under the chief diversity officers aegis of recruiting more diverse employees and watching the careers of those diverse employees and promoting them more that's um, that's going to that's going to accomplish a lot. In, in the end of the at the end of the day, you want to have your board and your senior management team and your rank and file 
reflecting the demographics of the customers and communities that you serve. So that, that needs to be corrected. And I, I hope we remain at the leadership of the, of the industry to pioneer that, that cause, champion that cause. Hi, my name is and CEO and co-founder of Next Trucking, a digital freight marketplace focusing on port drainage and truck all along haul. Many people ask you questions related to the market challenges today, and I wanted to switch the gear a little bit here. My question to you is, what innovation has impressed you the most in the logistic industry this year? I, I wouldn't say it's a specific um, light, light going off innovation, but the, the evolution of innovation in the automation inside the warehouse uh, very much impresses me because it improves safety, improves profit, improves employee satisfaction. The customers love it because we can give a better service for a lower price, and it's a win-win because we can make a higher margin. So I believe that the innovation in the warehouse uh, is, is, is at the forefront of, of tangible, concrete innovation that's going on in the industry. We have a partnership with one of our customers in Europe, Nestle, and we've uh, developed with them the warehouse of the future. And by that, I mean every single uh, part of automation and technological innovation inside the warehouse. Um, we've met with all those OEMs, and they continue to pitch to us, and we evaluate all the different products. And we picked the one, we've selected the ones that we think are the most advanced and the ones that are, have highest chances of succeeding and continuing to evolve in the future. And we're providing the software that links them all together through the WMX. And, and that, that was going to go live in July here, uh, but due to the pandemic, it's a few months behind schedule. But I, I can't wait till that opens. That's going to be a showcase for the whole industry. And we're going we're gonna to share the, the proprietary technology that we have there with our other warehouses around the globe and, and also, to the extent it makes sense, open source it. Hey, Brad. Um, Dave Dolan. I lead the transportation, logistics, and supply chain technology practice at DC Advisory. Uh, and I'm going to piggyback on Lydia's shift to technology questions here. Um, you've been at the forefront of tech investment in this ecosystem for a long time. How has COVID impacted your views on tech investment going forward? And you know, that could be investment opportunities, challenges, and, and I'm thinking of you know, whether it's maintenance oriented around truck orders and needing to keep vehicles moving that, that might be slightly outdated in years to come, workflow management, even autonomous. Yeah. Um, I was already a believer in technology, and you know we put our money where our mouth is, investing billions of dollars in our tech innovation. But the COVID experience has only increased that believing. I, we, what we've seen is the companies that have been able to continue to function effectively without missing a beat during this downturn have done better than those who, who got dislocated. I mean, I know in, in Europe, for example, some of our competitors just shut down and stopped providing service for customers. Of course, we got that market share. So there's, there's an, a heightened awareness of how to interact with each other and the importance of artificial intelligence. So anything that can be automated in the entire supply chain, we have resources dedicated to figuring out how to automate that. And COVID is just... While COVID obviously was a was a bad thing, a terrible thing, it still is. Uh, from the point of, like all bad things, there's always some good in them. In this case, having a heightened awareness about how we communicate with each other and the importance of embracing artificial intelligence and accepting machine learning as not the future but the present 
has increased as a result of COVID. So I think that's a positive thing. On artificial intelligence, that's the biggest aspect that's going to affect all the different aspects of transportation logistics, in my opinion. So for example, pricing. Pricing five years from now won't be done by humans in pretty much any company. It'll be done by the computers. And the reason for that is they do it, the computers do it better than we humans because they have capacity for more information being stored and the ability to analyze that information in rapid, rapid time. And unlike us fallible human beings, the computers are advancing and the computers are getting better and better at that with more memory and more processing speed and more information and more algorithms, and more sophistication. So pricing is, is going to become more fair. It's, there's going to be less money left. On, it's going to be more fair for the shipper and for the provider because it's going to be just that right. It's going to be that Goldilocks, just that right price, not too high, not too low. Great. Hi, hi, Brad. This is Carl Kirkaby with Jefferies. Um, my question is about uh, is about outsourcing. Um, you know, I know you've talked in the past a lot about outsourcing, and uh, and and what a tailwind that has been for your business. Um, where do you see uh, the the outsourcing trend? Uh, where do you see momentum in that today? We've seen all, you know Amazon, Walmart, Target. A lot of these are doing more fulfillment and more more uh, operations internally. So where do you see the momentum today? And where do you think we are as far as the outsourcing trend in that uh, in that lifespan. Well, the companies you just made, mentioned are, are, are still good customers for us and are outsourcing to us and helping them because they're growing real fast. I think outsourcing is the number one driver of growth in the in three PL industry globally. Where and I think COVID nineteen has accelerated that trend. I think customers have. I wouldn't say gone. Well, maybe I should. Some have gone into a panic. Some have just, let's just say, have gotten very focused on, can we really do this ourselves? Or should we outsource this to someone who does this for a living? Someone who has the technology, someone who has the expertise, has the people, has the knowledge of what's going on throughout the entire industry and just really, really can do it better. And I am very confident, based on many conversations I've had with lots of customers, that the outsourcing trend is going to pick up. We were talking to one of our largest, one of our top 10 customers the other day. It's a very big retailer uh, globally, and they're planning on closing. They confided with us that of their 5,000 or so bricks and mortar stores, they're, they're planning on closing 1,000 of them uh, over the next two, three years. So that's a 20% reduction in bricks and mortar. They believe they can still keep that business by going on e-commerce. And on the e-commerce part, they need, to, they need, they need our help. To, to run that in a very smooth way, in a very effective way, because the customer, the, the, the level of service that the customer demands in e-commerce is higher than the regular old bricks and mortar customer. They want fast delivery and they want, they want to be able to return it if they don't like it. So it, it's more tricky stuff and they need outsourced providers like us. So I think, I think outsourcing will accelerate as a result of COVID-19. Hi, Brad. Anthony Smith, lead economist at FreightWaves here. As an economic advisor, I've had to have many tricky conversations with executives on prepping for growth during economic downturn and vice versa, prepping for downturn during the midst of economic expansion. As a visionary, I'm sure there are many times you've had baffling calls that really trick a lot of other people when they couldn't quite see the process. I'm very interested in your mindset and your attitude in moving forward in the coming quarters during these times of uncertainty. You're asking about which aspect of that? Your mindset now, um, whether we have a lot of uncertainty right now in the economic space, 
how are you prepping your mindset? Are you expecting a lot of growth and a lot of opportunity in the coming quarters? And how are you navigating some of those conversations? I don't know. Um, I, I don't know. It really depends on a lot of factors that are external and exogenous and outside of our control. We don't know what the political situation is going to be here in the United States. We don't know what the international relations between the superpowers is going to be over the next few years. Uh, we don't, we're in completely new territory with the pandemic where we can't look at the last, last 10 pandemics we've had, because we haven't had the last 10 pandemics, and see, well, how did the economy act in these ways? We've never had this kind of stimulus where trillions and trillions of dollars were pumped into the economies around the world and now having to deal with paying that back and keeping the economy rolling. So you know, I'm, I'm cautious in the short term. I, I see, I see there's, there's potential challenges in the short term. I'm very bullish about the long term. The reason I'm very bullish about the long term is the pandemic's going to be over. This pandemic's not going to last forever. There's never been a problem, probably in the history of humanity, where more people, more resources, more governments, more individuals, more institutions have just dropped everything else and just focused on solving a problem. This is this is the problem of all problems. And I'm, I, look at the vaccine. I mean, people are talking about the vaccines being developed in the next few months. It usually takes a decade to develop a vaccine. So there's some spectacular accomplishments being done in the scientific community. Governments are pitching in. So it's quite impressive. I mean, you look on the government level, you look back at the great financial crisis, and we were all proud of what our government did during the great financial crisis back in 2007, 2008, and, and there's books and movies written about it. You look what the governments around the world have done in the last few months, and it's a hundredfold of what the governments did in the great financial crisis, and it kept functioning. The, the society has kept functioning despite the whole pandemic hitting us right in the face. So it's very, very impressive. So I, I am a, I'm very impressed with humanity. I'm very impressed with the resilience and the intelligence and the ability to focus on problem solving that humanity has when we work together. And I think you're seeing that play out. So the pandemics had a lot of ups and downs and backs and forths and this worked, this didn't work. But generally speaking, we're closer to it being over now than we were a few months ago. So whether it's all over in a couple months or in six months or in three months or in nine months, I don't know. But it's not going to go on for years. And then once that's behind us, wow, people are going to be so eager to get out there and be creative and be entrepreneurial and to be successful and to be dynamic. There's all this pent up energy and enthusiasm and demand for life that we're not programmed to be sitting in our houses. That's not how humans have evolved. That's not how our brain works. It's not how our heart works. We want to be with other people. We want to be interacting with other people in real, not just on, on in cyberspace. Cyberspace, too. That technology is going to evolve, and that cyber experience is going to get more rich. But we want to, we're social animals. We want to be with other people. When we're finally let loose, and we're back in the office, and we're back in society working together without fear of getting sick, I'm very, very optimistic about what we're going to accomplish. I think the, the accomplishments in the arts, in science, in business, in government are going to eclipse what has been accomplished in previous decades and centuries. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to post-pandemic life. Hello, Brad. This is uh, John Larkin. I'm an operating partner at Clarendon Capital. Uh, good to be with you this morning. Uh, just wanted to uh, ask you a question about 
the fact that you've become a, a very good student of the industry, the transportation logistics industry, that is. Which companies in the industry do you admire the most? And what elements of those companies' strategies have you tried to incorporate at XPO? So I don't think, John, I've had any original ideas. I don't have any unique unique ideas. I have, as you said, been a student of the industry and always are, am curious and learning what's going on in the industry. Uh, I have a lot of respect for our competitors. I, I take them all very seriously, particularly the ones who are fast growing. I, you have to take your hat off to Amazon. I mean, Amazon is leaving everyone else in the dust in a lot of things that they do. They're at the, they're at the forefront. And they also have a culture on the executive level where they have a speak up culture where people, people, people speak their mind and, and people uh, volunteer ideas, even if they're not popular. So I think that's one big thing that's really made them very successful. I like J.B. Hunt. I like J.B. Hunt because of the people I, that I know there. I just think they're really good people. And I, I think having a heart and having a great character makes a difference in business. I think it makes a difference in life. But I think, it may, I think it's a big plus in business that when you have integrity and when you have people who are really caring, and, and I see that in, in the J.B. Hunt folks. I'm not going to go down the whole list. There's something I like about all of our competitors. I, I, I think the industry has a lot of companies that are doing a lot of cool stuff. People are doing different things. People aren't all doing the same thing, but there's a lot of good stuff going on. So Brad, uh, Larkin stole my question, so I, I'm going to ask a different one. Uh, make a bold call for the next decade. What is the uh, thing that perhaps people aren't talking about that you're going to uh, predict is going to happen over the next decade in the space or just generally? I think that um, the future for the industry is bright over the next 10 years. The reason I think it's bright is because there's going to be more demand for the services that we provide. So volume 10 years from now will be much higher than volume is right now. I think the cost of doing business will be lower, and that's due to the automation and due to the machine learning and all the technology. So the combination of more volume and lower cost means companies can fulfill their prime mission, which is to create shareholder value. They can create value for the people who actually own the company. And I, that's very, very, very positive. I think because of technology developments 10 years from now, our ability to communicate with each other will be much, much better, much, much higher. And that's the business that we're in on the big picture. The big picture, the transportation and logistics industry is about information, is about data, is about knowledge, is about knowing where things are, where they got to go, what are the alternatives of how to get them there, and what's the best way to get them there? What's the best mode? What's the best timing and so forth? And our ability to deliver on that value proposition will be so much greater 10 years from now than it is right now. So I, I like the industry and I, I like where it's going. Hi, Brian. I have another question for you this morning. Um, with all the change that's happening in the financial world and in the economic situation, tell me about the markers that you're using to determine when to make changes in your business. So we run the company by metrics on an on a operating basis. We, we, have, we try to take the subject subjectivity out of it as much as possible and just keep it real. So we have different metrics for different service lines and their operating metrics and their financial metrics. So you want to have a lot of feedback loops so, those, so the metrics tell the full story. So we have lots of feedback loops between our employees and management. We have a lot of feedback loops between our customers and management. We have a lot of feedback loops between the people who own the company, the share owners and the company and management. So all these feedback loops 
or what makes the company successful. And that's what I'm really spending majority of my time on. Majority, majority of my time is not being a visionary, but majority of my time is on making sure we have the right connections, the right connectivity between all the people in the organization who should be communicating with each other. Because when you're, when you're operating in 30 different countries, you find pockets where some really great stuff's going on here. And there's some really spectacular accomplishment and new way, new approach to something. And as a senior management team, the idea is to, okay, how do you liberate that information? How do you take that information and transplant it and cross-fertilize it as fast as possible, as widely as possible to every place that can benefit from that? So that, that's what I spend a lot of my time on. I don't come up with the ideas. I'm just the CEO. The people in the field, the people running the business come up with great, great ideas. But you're never going to hear those ideas if you don't ask them. So we ask. We ask and ask and ask. It's a big part of our culture. What are we doing right? What can we be doing better? You have to ask both of those questions. You have to ask people, if you were CEO and you could do anything you want, what would you change? And what would you make sure you didn't change? And you have to, you have to get a lot of opinions, a lot of input, a lot of feedback, and then see what the themes are. And then you have to analyze that, and then you have to stack rank, okay, what are the things that are going to move the needle most in our mission? And that's what you focus on. Hey, Brad, it's Ben. So you've been a legendary acquirer, and you've been quiet on the M&A front for, for the last couple of years. What's your current outlook, and how do you think about M&A today? I like M&A. I think there's opportunities in M&A. I think particularly in the, in the pandemic era now, uh, there, there are some interesting opportunities. Um, will we buy a company in the short term? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, we, tr we try to announce those things in retrospect rather than prospectively because M&A is very difficult to predict. Yet there's a lot of hoops between here and, and, the, and the end zone. And until you're at the end zone, it's probably premature to announce stuff. But we're looking at things. We're looking at things to buy. It's, it's interesting opportunities out there. I like M&A. I mean, I've done a lot of M&A over my life. And the reason I like it is I, it creates a lot of value if, if you do intelligent M&A. And by that, I mean you, you buy things that there's a compelling strategic reason to do it. There's a synergistic angle to it. There's something where one plus one equals more than two. Could be cost out, could be cross-selling, could be putting them on our tech platform. It could be learning something from the acquired company. Could be critical mass, could be scale, could be density. So, so many different things. But as long as there's a real thoughtful process to understand, well, why are we doing this? Like, what's the purpose of doing this? How are we going to create shareholder value? How are we going to delight our customers more by doing this acquisition? So that's that's the first box to check. Second box to check there is, What's the valuation? What's the price? Because you can do a deal that's great in all respects, except the price is too high, and it's impossible to achieve your mission for your shareholders. You can't create shareholder value because you have that that ball and chain tied to you of the purchase price, and the the I in ROI is too high. So you know there has to be a strategic reason. There has to be a well thought out plan of what you're going to do with the acquisition after you acquire it. And the purchase price has to make sense. But assuming you have those, um, you can create a lot of value do, doing acquisitions. Look at the 17 acquisitions that we selected to do out of the 2,000 or so acquisitions that we, we looked at in, in, over the last decade. They were doing about $15 billion in revenue in 2015. We grew that business, those, that, that organization that, that had been comprised of those, that was comprised of those 
17 different companies previously, by $2 billion on the top line organically from 2015 to 2019. We grew the EBITDA profit from about $1.1 billion to about $1.6 billion, so about $500 million of profit improvement. So that, that I mentioned a minute ago, we look at KPIs to keep it real. So we just don't have opinions and ideas and fantasies, but we have real KPIs, real metrics, objective data to, to, to validate or invalidate what our hypotheses were. So I, I think those numbers validate that the M&A strategy we had worked. And, and when and if we have opportunities to have significant accretion in our, in our earnings power and our ability to delight our customers, um, we'll do more M&A. But we're not in a hurry. When, when it's the right time, it'll be the right time. One good thing is we have a lot of money right now. We have a, over $2 billion of cash in the bank. It's earning about nothing percent. So it's, it's, not, uh, it's not like we're making a big investment return on that from leaving it in the bank. So sooner or later, we'll have to figure out how we're going to deploy that. Do we deploy that by, by M&A? Do we deploy that by more CapEx? Do we deploy that by share, in, in terms of share buyback? So, so we'll, we'll see. But it's a good problem to have, having, having a lot of money. Hey, Brad, can you hear me this time? Yes, sir. All right, good, good. So over the last few years, there's been a lot of activity with private equity companies in the space. But over the last six months or so, the stock market has been extremely hot. A lot of SPACs have come into the marketplace. Do you see transportation logistics moving more into the public markets? There's not a lot of publicly traded companies now. Do you see that number growing in the future? I don't know. I don't know if 10 years from now there'll be more public companies or fewer public companies because I think over the next decade we'll have a lot of consolidation because this economy is a scale with consolidation. So I think looking out five, 10 years from now, you could, I need to think a little bit more, but my, my initial reaction is that there could be fewer, bigger companies. There could be more companies by market cap and by revenue, but the actual number of companies might be, might be a lower number. Because I think there'll be mergers of even large companies that you, today you would think, what? That company and that company, they're not going to go together. But in the future, yeah, that company and that company might come together. So I think there's synergies between different companies that even the companies themselves haven't figured that out yet. So in the fullness of time over the next few years, people with a vested interest to figure out that kind of stuff will figure that out. So I got to think about that a little bit more. For a company of your size, you have an unusually large number of data scientists. Which parts of your company are they deployed to, and where do you see an opportunity for more deployment in the future? Well, the, the thing I'm most excited about, what the data and I, by coincidence, just met with them yesterday, the, the senior data scientist people under Mario. Um, the thing I'm most excited about what they're working on is what we're doing in LTL. Because in LTL, we're applying tech, we're basically transforming what we do. We're transforming how we price it and making that all by autonomous algorithms. We're pricing how we do the pickup and delivery and doing that all computer generated. We're transforming how we manage the labor on the cross dock and doing that with our proprietary smart technology. We're automating the, the line haul and figuring out ways of, instead of driving 2.6 million miles a day, how can we drive 2.2, 2.3, 2.4 million miles a day and still get the freight delivered on time? So we're, we're automating and applying technology to all these things, and the data scientists are, are, are leading that. It's the days of randomly running a business without the power and precision of technology are ending, in my, in my opinion. 
Brad, John Larkin again. Uh, being a CEO of a public company is probably one of the hardest jobs uh, on the planet. Uh, you know that better than uh, most. Uh, the number one job of a public company CEO is to uh, create shareholder value, i.e. push up the stock price. Uh, you had a very interesting plan in place earlier this year to capitalize on the very uh, strong valuation that Old Dominion was earning in the marketplace and plan to divest most of the other businesses aside from your LTL operation. Uh, then the COVID recession hit, stocks got slaughtered. Uh, have you been surprised with how quickly uh, the valuations of some of the stocks have rebounded here recently? And uh, have you had any second thoughts about scuttling that deconsolidation uh, program that you started out earlier in the year? And is that something you would evaluate uh, going forward, given how strong Old Dominion's valuation is today? Old Dominion has a very high valuation. It's in the high teens times EBITDA, and they deserve it because they're running a company quarter after quarter, year after year to date, where they've met or beat their numbers, and they've had very high levels of customer satisfaction. So my hat's off to them. I have a huge amount of respect and admiration for Old Dominion as an LTL pure play. In terms of uh, the project we were working on to pursue strategic alternatives for some of our business units, we're not spending any time on that whatsoever. What we're spending time on now is how do we, how do we keep all our employees safe? That's our, our main, main, every morning, that's, that's what we talk about first as a senior management team. This is the first thing we talk about. That's the thing we talk about most. If you did a word cloud of all the different conversations that we're having throughout the company, things that have to do with keeping our employees safe, with those words would appear the biggest and the most often. And how do we keep building the company in a methodical way, in a well-conceived way, utilizing technology, utilizing our leadership positions in some of the fastest growing parts of the industry, keeping the culture very strong, very honest, very integrated, and fulfilling, as you said, our very prime mission of creating shareholder value from the, the pension funds and the mutual funds and the hedge funds who have graciously lent their money to us, even if it's in the form of equity, whether debt or equity, we have a solemn obligation to them. And we don't forget that. Now, you would think, most well, of course you don't forget that. Well, a lot of companies do forget that. A lot of companies forget that their primary stakeholder are the people who own the company. And you have a duty to those, those, those retirees and those pension people have their pension money with you and their 401ks and their investment money. They need to get a return. So you want to be generating a positive return. So I, I, I started off this, this, this call saying, Craig asked what I'm most proud of. I'm most proud that we were the seventh best performing stock of the four, Fortune 500 in the last decade. That's our primary goal. So we're going to keep being flexible. We're going to keep being open-minded. We're not going to be rigid. We're going to be adaptable to changing circumstances. We're going to be opportunistic to whatever allows us to fulfill our mission. And if that means buying something here and selling something there, whatever that is, we're going to continue to evaluate that forever. That forever, that's a non-stopping non process forever in the future of the company is we're going to be flexible in our, in our mindset of who we want to be and how we want to develop as an organization that creates the most shareholder value. And we take a big cue from our customers. We take a big cue from our customers trying to hear 
What do they want? What are they willing to pay for? I mean, don't forget, customers have choices. We don't have a monopoly. This is a business that has lots of fragmentation, a lot of competition. You have to have a superior product. You have to provide a superior service. So we're always going to see where's the demand? Where are the, where's the demand for what services and in what way do our customers want those services delivered? And what do our customers value? And what we may think we've, they value, but they tell us they don't value. So we're going to be upsizing and downsizing our, our company forever based on what customers are telling us, what the demand is for. Hey, Brad. Uh, Dave Dolan here again. You've mentioned automation, AI, machine learning, and the impact it's going to have on your internal uh, operations. And I fully agree with your, your takes on um, you know, kind of where that's going. I'd like to push you a little bit, though, on autonomous trucking and what you think the near-term and long-term impacts will be and what the proof points you'll be looking for before you know, that becomes a, a meaningful portion of uh, your operations. Well, there's no question that autonomous trucking is going to come in a major way. The question is when, how soon? And I think the gating factor on that is really not the technology because the technology is moving very, very fast. The gating factor on that is, is regulatory approval. And a lot of that's going to be politics and what the political landscape looks like in the next administration and whether they're in favor of it or not and whether they make it easier or hard to, to, to do autonomous trucking. But eventually the so-called hidden hand of Adam Smith's capitalism will bring autonomous trucking to the world because it's more efficient, it's more effective. So look at, look at, look at the states, for example, where we have about 25% of the trucks, the space on trucks, the class A trucks on the highway are empty. And you have all these deadheads, you have all these empty miles. This is totally inefficient. It's wasting money and it's polluting the environment for no reason at all. So what's the obstacle to that? The obstacle to that is we have to figure out eventually a way that there's a national network where every truck, over 2 million trucks, actually we can bring the number of trucks down with autonomous trucking, but call it roughly about 2 million trucks on the highway. There has to be a central place where we know where all those trucks are at any point in time. That doesn't exist right now. People know where they're, actually some companies don't even know where their own fleet is at, any, at a moment in time. We will get to a point through technology where we do know where every truck is all across the country. And that, will, that information will be electronically shared with the people who need those services, with shippers, and the computers will figure out what's the right truck for the right load, share, sharing trucking, that's why I'm so bullish on LTL, sharing the capacity with various customers because it's economical for all those concerned. That's the future. So I don't think we can fight I mean, people who think that autonomous trucking is a, is a flash in the pan are wrong. Autonomous trucking is coming. I don't know how soon it's going to be. It might take a little bit longer than I originally thought. Hey, Brad, it's George Abernathy. Um, wanted to thank you for doing this. We've got about 90 seconds left. I uh, wanted to sort of end on one of those common themes that you were talking about, maybe blend in a little bit of what Ben Gordon said. How do you look at those companies that you are acquiring? When, when you're acquiring a company and you see that the culture isn't consistent with what you've built at XBO. Is that a non-starter then? It's a total non-starter. Well, well, let me back up. It depends what we're talking about there. There's cultures that are honest companies. There's cultures that are, they're bent. They're not honest companies. They're not ethical. They're not compliant. They're not, they don't respect the regulations. They don't respect each other. They have discrimination. They have 
sexism. They have all kinds of bad stuff. You don't want to buy a company like that because that's a fixer-upper that you is. It's almost impossible to fix that. That's like a, a rot. It's like a poison that's in a company that it's 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 lethal. It's lethal. So if a company's got a, a corrupt culture, so to speak, you don't want to buy that. Now you can buy companies that have maybe they're a little bit sleepy and they need some energy infused into them. They need a little oomph in, in their in their injected into the organization. That's fine. You can buy companies that have a culture that wasn't embracing technology much because they didn't have a lot of technology spend to have results that they could embrace and then put them on our platform and they see what it can do and they see the graphic user interfaces and they see how they can get their job done and better in a shorter period of time and they'll embrace it. So the culture won't be identical. Every time we bought a company, our own culture changed. Thank you for the time. Appreciate it, Brad. Thank you, everybody.